digging in the dirt. I'm digging in the dirt. This is Digging in the Dirt with Kevin Gallagher, where Kevin and his guests dig a little deeper into today's issues surrounding the environment, climate change, farming, gardening, and food. My guest today on Digging in the Dirt is the president and CEO of the E.O. Wilson Biodiversity Foundation and co-founder of the Half-Earth Project, Paula J. Ehrlich. The Half-Earth Project's purpose is to inspire informed collective action to save the biosphere. Welcome, Dr. Ehrlich. Hi, lovely to be speaking with you today. The Half-Earth proposes an achievable plan to save our imperiled biosphere by devoting half the surface of the Earth to nature. Edward O. Wilson, the author of this plan, says in order to stave off the mass distinction of species, including our own, we must move swiftly to preserve the biodiversity of our planet. Half-Earth argues that the situation facing us is too large to be solved piecemeal and proposes a solution commensurate with the magnitude of the problem. Dedicate fully half of the surface of Earth to nature's. So, Dr. Ehrlich, maybe we should start with you telling us a little bit about two-time Pulitzer Prize winner E.O. Wilson and this concept. Well, E.O. Wilson is the preeminent champion of biodiversity, uh, but the thing that he's most famous for is influencing our lives. Uh, He's the creator of two scientific disciplines, sociobiology and island biogeography, three unifying concepts for science and the humanities jointly, biophilia, biodiversity studies, and consilience, and one major technological advance in the study of global biodiversity, the Encyclopedia of Life. And and one of the interesting things about Haffer uh, is that in some ways we're, as he created these uh, other scientific disciplines that they were often controversial or tested or or, and then eventually found to be true. The idea of half-earth as it's emerged in the book that he wrote about it, uh, as well as its acceptance across the scientific community has actually been kind of extraordinary. The concept of half-earth as he's conceived it is something that is very much rooted in the science that many scientists have been well weaned on from their very early teaching and research. And it's really his theory of island biogeography that he conceived with um, a colleague back in the 50s that it really explains why all confined landscapes inevitably lose species. And it's the scientific foundation for the relationship between habitat and species that defines um, half earth. And half earth itself as an idea is a principle that's now widely accepted among scientists but particularly powerful under E.O. Wilson's convening voice. He's he's earned more than 400 scientific awards and other honors, uh, including the U.S. National Medal of Science, the Crawford Prize, which is kind of like the Nobel, but for ecology, the International Prize of Biology of Japan, the Nonina, the Serrano Prizes of Italy, the Cosmos Prize of Japan, and as you mentioned, two Pulitzer Prizes in nonfiction. He's an extraordinary scientist but also a poet. And in some ways it's, it's through the, the way he's able to share the story of the science and engage people with that information that makes his voice in this moment so extraordinarily important 
particularly as we're uh, leaning forward with an, a, a really extraordinary sense of the environmental crises of this moment. Yeah, I just finished the book and you're right. His writing style is very gentle and optimistic and positive in a lot of ways while he's giving you a dose of medicine. Right. It's, mm -hmm. He's mm -hmm. very interesting that way. You know, I, I, I literally, it sounds dramatic, but I was really moved by the story about the rhinoceros. You know, I was like yeah. devastated by the story. And, uh, and, you know, he doesn't delve into that so much. That's just one example, I guess, of a species that's really taken it on the chin from humanity. What he's trying to say with that story is, is to remind us of our human connection with nature, right? Not, not just the, 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 science, the sense of loss that we might experience if we lose an extraordinary species like the rhino, and not just the science that suggests that that, that species is important to ecosystems in our lives, but actually to have that really personal connection which I think is what you responded to, right? This extraordinary sense of loss that's personal to ourselves. And I think one of the reasons why he's, usually, he's always trying to pull that forward uh, in his writing is a deep sense that the more closely we identify ourselves with, with the rest of life, the more quickly we'll be able to discover the, the sources of human sensibility, right? And acquire the knowledge on which we can build an enduring ethic, right? A sense of preferred direction that we can build on to really care for our planet. Tough task in these days of, uh, you know, a lot of greedy people and people not connected to nature is what I find the difficulty to be. You've, you have a diverse career and we won't get into it, but you've done a lot of stuff. And now all of a sudden you co-founded the Half Earth Project and you're working with E.O. Wilson. What, what brought you to him? How, how did this happen? Um, our lives overlapped quite a bit earlier in my career, even as an undergraduate at Duke University, um, my major advisor and, and uh, he were both uh, colleagues and researchers, field researchers. And so um, I ran into him, if you will. <laughs> we crossed paths many times over the course of, of, um, of uh, my career and growing up. Um, and it was really uh, at about, uh, well, at a certain time of life where I decided it wasn't really about my career anymore or what I needed to develop, um, but really about doing something bigger than myself um, and something, a place where I could make a difference. And the, the friendship that we had developed over time um, found its moment, I guess, where we had been running into each other, but, um, but now that no longer felt like a coincidence, but a meant to be. And as, as he and I considered what we really needed to do um, to care for the planet and to bring his voice forward, the thing that really struck me was that he had been on the boards of all the major environmental conservation organizations. He, he knew what worked and what hadn't worked. And that really the most important role that I could play was in helping bring forward what he really felt we needed to do to care for our planet. And at that time, he was thinking a lot about really what, what he'd been writing about his whole life, the importance of science and education, the importance of engaging people uh, in caring for our planet. And really, 
began to realize that across those conservation organizations, while we had been earnestly putting out fires, if you will, and trying to care for the species of our planet, we were falling short. In fact, the extinction rate's currently a thousand times higher than at any time in human history. And what he really began to feel was that we needed a moonshot, a goal, something where we needed to move from a process which had been somewhat successful to really having a goal. And it's a big deal. It's not just important conceptually in terms of what, what scientifically what we need to do, but it's also important inspirationally, right? Because if you look at history, this is the sort of ambition, this is the sort of moonshot goal that, that drives humanity. And so it became important, therefore, not just to do the deep science, but to truly imagine how we could engage people and feeling like they wanted to be part of an, uh, an Apollo mission team that could bring together the best of their experience and, per and expertise and really feel like they were part of joining together to achieve a goal like this. And it ultimately solves an extraordinarily important problem and allows everyone to participate in, in caring for our planet. Yeah, I read in the book that he says the global conservation movement has done well, but it's inadequate to the problem. So he said, unless a new green revolution can be engineered, your moonshot you're talking about, humanity risks the elimination of most of the remaining land-based diversity. And by destroying most of the biosphere with archaic short-term methods, we are setting ourselves up for a self-inflicted disaster. What, what is that disaster that he's he's talking about here and what's the alternative to this conservation movement is it half earth i see that a lot of countries are doing at least a third of the land right now if that's that's happening if that's a positive mm -hmm. yeah and and i think that um where we're now earnestly moving forward uh with targets like 30 by 30 um it is within an awareness that we need to protect more habitat in order to safeguard sort of sufficient space to protect really the bulk of biodiversity. And that biodiversity is really a, a kind of a web of life that we're also a part of. And we need to think about that web of life on a global scale. So where Half Earth is and the Half Earth Project are really focused now is making sure we truly understand what all the species are on our planet. So that as we move to establish geopolitical, geospatial goals for conservation and try to prioritize them, we do those in the places where we have the best opportunity to protect the most species. And so that we really work to not only map the species of our planet at a high enough resolution so that we know where we have that opportunity. But another huge message that I'm sure you read in the book as well is that we, we have to discover the species that we don't really fully know. Because in the absence of having that comprehensive information, um, we could actually be losing species um, unintentionally and by losing them potentially destabilize this web of life that's sustaining ourselves as part of nature um, and that's why these this, these goals are so important not only 
so that that we can together decide that this is what we want to do is what we want to do is well as humanity but also so that we understand how to achieve success not just protecting land but the species that inhabit those places and that we fully understand the impact of any changes we might make in developing them or conserving them the object is to preserve those last remaining domains of natural living species and actually stay out of their way i guess like, <laughs> right. yeah well um Yes, species, the biodiversity of our planet has evolved over three and a half billion years in this sort of exquisite balance, some of which we understand, and, and much of it we don't understand at all. And so you're right, with great humility, until we understand it better, we should humbly <laughs> let it function um, in, in the way that it, it, it has exquisitely developed over time. The, the thing is, is that, is that though, as we begin to discover and map the species of our planet, we'll also be able to understand how they fit together, how they interact to form ecosystems. And in that sense, by understanding them, know where we have the best opportunity to relax in the way you suggest and let things be. And a lot of this story it, it, it's really about understanding keystone species um, because as, as extinction spreads, um, some of the species that we lose may prove to be keystone species whose disappearance will bring down other species and trigger a sort of a ripple effect through the demographies of the survivors. Mm -hmm. um, there's a, there's a really good story about, um, well, many keystone species, but a good example of how humans can impact an environment without fully understanding it is the story of the sea otter, um, which once thrived among the kelp beds close to shore from Alaska to Southern California. And really, I think unknowingly, they were hunted by explorers and settlers for fur. And by the end of the century, they were almost close to extinction. So we sort of knew what we were doing. We just didn't understand the consequences of it because where they disappeared completely, there was an unexpected sequence of events that unfolded um, where sea urchins, which were normally the major prey of the otters, actually exploded in numbers and consumed large portions of the kelp and other kind of inshore seaweeds. And so where kelp was used to be a veritable forest from the sea bottom to the surface during otter times, now it was like mostly gone and the ocean floor was like a desert. Now in this case, conservation has jumped in, <laughs> restored the sea otter and the otters waxed and the sea urchins waned and the kelp forest grew back to its original luxuriance and a bunch of other species moved in along with crustaceans and squid and fishes and other organisms. And that's where that that's a success story where we know we were able, we knew what we, we had done and where we could restore that to restore really an extraordinarily important ecosystem. But in many, in many cases, 
we don't know where we're disrupting ecosystems. We don't know where there are species that may be playing an unknown or poorly understood role, which could be an eco, a keystone species where losses, where their loss might cause unintended or unexpected devastation of a whole ecosystem. And so that's why until we understand all the species of our planet better, comprehensively understand where they are, we do need to do what you've said, which is by, by, by all means do no harm <laughs> until we understand the, the entirety of this, of the geospatial location of all the species of our planet much, much better. It reminds me from what you're saying of what I saw in this new movie, Seas Piracy where they, the one interviewee was saying that we don't know what's going on here because we're eliminating like the sharks and then this affects the next one down and the next one down, which reminded me of what Lynn Mar Margulis said about in Symbiotic Earth. She said, you know, we're a system of systems. You eliminate one of the layers of the system and then we've got issues. It may be, like you said, a keystone species. Is, mm -hmm. that, is that what we're yeah, talking about? There's there's lots of really, really good examples of this. They're called trophic cascades. Um, they're, they're stories of the, the wolves in Yellowstone um, being restored it, it, very importantly because in their absence, um, the deer were simply taking, just simply their numbers were so high that they were destroying the, the um, ecosystem around them. And with the reintroduction of wolves, then the, the, those ecosystems were, um, they came back and flourished and thrived. Um, and I think these stories are really important to tell because uh, without them, we don't really fully understand um, our impacts on the planet, as well as um, the many different ways that we really should be leaning in to collaboratively understand it better so that we know how to best steward and protect it. Um, and I think another big piece of this beyond the science and beyond leaning in and truly understanding kind of our place as part, part of nature is to really address the global inequities that separate us. With most of the world's biodiversity on indigenous land and the hands of local people, we really need to strike a new balance between all the stewards of nature, both long-standing and new. And so with that informed science, as well as maybe a new awareness of how we are living on the earth and, and, and truly developing a consciousness that allows us to achieve that, health, humanity will together be healthier and wiser and, and really better able to serve as the mind of the biosphere to address the extinction crisis. You know, I, I don't want to throw cold water on all this, but how do we go about doing this when you have the Bolsonaros of the world destroying the Amazon? And there's a lot of examples in many, many countries that are, of that happening. You know, I was thinking the other day until talking to somebody, I said, if there's an intergalactic interspecies tribunal out there in the universe, and I think it might be highly likely that they would bring up homo sapiens of earth on charges of you know, genocidal crimes against the species of their planet. It's like, we really go after all the other species. We've, we've sent a lot of things into extinction. There's mm -hmm. Homo sapien, you know, in the name of 
you know, fur trade and uh, oil trade and blubber trade and all the different trades that, we, and we just wantonly do it. I mean, how do we stop this? Is that what her, half Earth is doing? Is that who, who are you approaching that can help us stop this stuff? Well, what she, what we really need, and I think you're alluding to, right, is a, a change in our consciousness about what our role should be, and really what it is we're trying to achieve. I, I know that that many, many years of growth and development have made many people feel that in order for us to thrive and survive, that we need to grow <laughs> and that we, um, and really have dominion over nature to, in order to support that growth. I think that there is a growing movement culture, a growing, number of businesses, for example, that are focused on sustainability, that are more and more fully realizing that we don't necessarily or we can't necessarily measure success just by a return to stakeholders, that we really need to measure our success by how what we're doing contributes to a thriving and sustainable planet. That's the bottom line, really. And my sense is that that must first be informed by extraordinarily deep science, scientific ambition that transforms our understanding of the world and what we need to care for it, side by side with really a moral conviction to act to protect biodiversity as one of humanity's transcendent goals. But what it really takes and what's guiding us as we're trying to move this um, forward is courage. <laughs> In many cases, it's courageous research, right? That provides that scientific leadership that helps everyone truly understand what it means to have a resilient planet, to take care of our home. And then education. Educate, educating young people, engaging people early to foster a sort of intergenerational commitment to stewardship of the earth. And then really creating this transformative way of understanding and perceiving and celebrating the inherent value of nature in our lives. It's only I think through that shift in our consciousness and this is what the Half Earth Project is aiming to do with what, everything we're doing every day um, to really begin to shift people's, the core of, of our humanity to fully embrace that um, as opposed to thinking of um, our planet as a resource that could be renewed <laughs> um, or fixed by technology or perhaps that we would move to Mars <laughs> to find a new place to go, to really, really think about caring for what we have now rather than, well, creating a situation that we'll have to fix in the future. The public agrees with you. I think 70, 75% of the public think it's the environment is important, that climate change is real and that we have to deal with all this. But you have all these big moneyed interests that disagree and want to continue to 
I call them extractors, deplete, depleters, exploiters, yeah. profiteers of the planet Earth. You know, it's a constant taking and not giving anything back to, to the planet. I mean, one of the things I really liked and when he said in the book that we have to look at our current economic measures to fully valuing natural capital and decoupling economic activity from material and environmental throughputs. He thinks that's urgently needed. How do we achieve that? Well, as I mentioned, I, I think the business community is really starting to think about that. And I understand that there are always going to be some bad actors out there, but there are more and more forums. There are more and more pledges. There are more and more gatherings of the business community that's actually truly beginning to understand that this resource is not infinite or that manipulating it purely for financial ends is not necessarily a sustainable business model. <laughs> um, and so I do think that there is some very, very good thinking going on right now. And, and, and I mostly sense it because we're having those players ask us to help them understand um, cool. more and more uh, how, what they need to know about biodiversity in order for them to, to make right decisions, to live rightly within their businesses and, and, and in the world. I, I can give you an example. For example, we've created um, something called a species protection index, which is kind of like a FICA score for biodiversity. <laughs> it, it helps places really get a feel for how well they're doing in conserving or protecting the species of their place, and then where they may have the best opportunity to protect more. And so it gives them a score. And you could imagine businesses competing with each other for how well they're doing, right, in, in caring for our planet. With the, with the Species Protection Index, the SPI, um, we right now have a national report card for every nation. But we will be building a way in which uh, you could take any area of interest and get this same information. Uh, right now, you can get an SPI score from zero to 100, depending upon how many species groups you're protect are protected in your country. And right now, the average is about 41 for most countries. And you get 100 if you've reached conservation targets for all your country's species within your protected areas. And so you can really start to see where if right now you're protecting 13% of your land, whether that's really, that, that land is really working to protect the species of your place. There are some countries that have protected 13%, like Paraguay, that have average SPI. There's others like Ghana that's also protected 13% of its land, but has a blockbuster SPI of almost 79. And so it really begins to help people to see, help businesses to see, help countries to see how well they're doing and really inform their conservation action, prioritize where they go next um, in terms of, of conservation priorities and management of lands for conservation. And in that sense, make us more if you will, economically efficient, right? More effective in protecting endangered species and endangered ecosystems. And in my mind, businesses, communities, um, nations 
with that kind of information are much better able to make informed decisions um, that make sense, that are the right thing, right, for their business, their community, their country. Their children and their grandchildren, because <laughs> we all and have them, that right? Too. Yeah, absolutely. And that's a, that's a really, really important part of this, that we understand what it is that we're working together to achieve. And in many cases, it does come down simply to that, that our children, our grandchildren will also have the opportunity to see that rhino and to touch it and to know it as part of their lives. Or maybe not touch it, but see it. I love the concept that he had of these high-res cameras all over the world where we can see all that protected land and all these reserves. And I, I love that idea. And I, I wish we yeah. would fund yeah. that right away. <laughs> I think it would be a very popular television station. <laughs> I think it would too. And what that's all about is connecting people with nature wherever they are. Right. right? I mean, some of us won't have the opportunity to touch the that rhino. Um, but to, to, to be able to be part of discovering it, to seeing it run by, <laughs> um, maybe even to be able to zoom in on a map and learn more about it, why it's there, why the place it's in is special, and really participate in being part of, well, what protects it. That's a huge ambition of ours as we continue to build a map and build the different ways that we can engage people in really being part of the living world and being part of the lives of, um, well, our fellow citizens on the planet. The concept of half earth is kind of hard to get your head wrapped around it. it when, you know, people will say half the earth, I mean, what are we going to cut it in half and we'll stay, humanity will stay in one place. And I think it's, it's instructive maybe if we explain how we want to keep all the stuff that's wilderness now and the preserves and the national parks and make corridors of natural areas for the animals to exist and thrive. Because as he pointed out, we don't know. I mean, he thinks there's might be 6 million more species that we don't even know about, which is startling to me. So, yeah. I mean, it, the, and, it, and also he mentions these best places. And I was really pleased to see that the sequoias are one of them because that's what turned me into an environmentalist. I, my dad took me to the sequoias with my brothers and I was hooked, you know. I think mm -hmm. that's the cathedral of the planet, you know, the Sequoia National Forest. So, I mean, it, these explain that to everybody that uh, this, w what is being tried to happen, you know, the preserving yeah. these sections and the best places. Yeah. So you're right. Uh, when, when the idea of half earth is a simple idea that sticks and that's what makes it so powerful. But as you try to imagine which half in the early days, people did imagine, you know, a piece of barbed wire around the earth with people on one half and nature on the other. And so we began an earnest effort to really map what that looks like so we could show people what that could look like, as well as to gather people at Half Earth Day so that people could participate in that conversation. We're actually on our fifth half Earth Day, which happens halfway between Earth Day and Earth Day on October 22nd. And that's a forum in which we really try to reach new and broader audiences on an annual basis with really what this could look like. Now, the reason why half 
is the solution or the right idea is, is, has really grown out of a scientific principle that EO Wilson, some research that EO Wilson did as a young man that showed that as a, the size of an island grows, the diversity of life surviving on the island also grew and also that it grew in a mathematically predictable way. Um, so if you look at the curve that's predicted by that relationship, you get a pretty good idea that if we protect half, we'll be able to safeguard the bulk of biodiversity. And some of our scientific research is now showing that in fact, if we pick that half really, really well, we can, we can protect all of known biodiversity. We just need to focus in at that species level to do that. Now you mentioned what kinds of places and certainly large conservation areas like parks and preserves and reserves are enormously important ways of doing that especially where we know that there are species rich that are rich or rare in those places that, that need or should be protected. Um, but there are, it's also very important to pay attention to how these places are connected and where there are important smaller areas that might be unique reserves for uh, endemic species that exist nowhere else, for example. And so the way that we do it is actually much, it's fairly complicated, right? Um, it's, it's, there's no real black and white answer, except to the extent that if we understand where the species are on that map, it provides a really, really important guiding point. So it could be that the, the places we need to protect are places that are special to your heart <laughs> um, that are probably close to your heart because you, you, un, you have a sense of the lushness of the biodiversity that's there and how important it is in your life. But there are also places that you may not know um, and that remain to be explored that we need to include on this map so that we have a comprehensive sense globally of how to care for um, all of biodiversity. And that's really the work of the Half Earth Project at its core, is to make sure we provide that, that information so that we can provide the, the information that's necessary to, to inform collective action to care for all the places that we need to in order to protect the biodiversity of our planet. I'm speaking to the president and CEO of the E.O. Wilson Biodiversity Foundation and co-founder of the Half Earth Project, Paula J. Ehrlich. You know, uh, this is wonderful. I think it's a great plan and let's let's go. So we half half Earth Day. What do people do? What can they get involved with? What, what do you recommend? You know, to somebody out there listening? Well, it would be wonderful if you leaned in and visit us at our website, um, halfearthproject.org is a great entry portal to learn more. We also have a Half Earth Pledge, which provides a little bit more granular way by which you can connect with our work and we can connect with you as well. That, that portal then hopefully opens up different sorts of ways that people can connect with us from their own lives, from wherever they're living, or from wherever they have a special connection with, with places or wherever they may wish to contribute to achieving this goal. I appreciate that many people listening to your show are already doing an extraordinary amount of work 
and probably are very dedicated to conservation of our planet. And we would invite them to just become part of this community, whatever their experience or expertise. The idea behind Half Earth is, is for us to work together collaboratively um, and bringing our own unique talents to this uh, to really work together like an Apollo mission team to achieve this goal. I'd like to end on a positive note because E.O. E. Wilson in his book, the half earth says the reason he thinks we will change our ways hmm, correct course is because we are thinking organisms trying to understand how the world works and we will come awake i hope he is right what do you think i think that eo wilson is always right <laughs> <laughs> he's a smart man that's for sure you know i i do i actually have, i've learned to trust that it, it and I hope that we all can get behind that um, as much with our hearts as with our heads, that we're not just living in nature, but we're part of nature. And um, really the, the one species that, that has the ability to care for all the rest. Um, I, I think we know how to do that. Um, we just need to, well, have the will to do so. I think you're right. We have to be real stewards, you know, the people in charge of the planet, not to exploiting the planet don't you think absolutely wonderful thank you for being my guest uh, dr paula j ehrlich i appreciate thank it thank you digging in the dirt digging in the dirt you've been listening to digging in the dirt with kevin gallagher to hear past programs anytime you want visit the podcast section of wpkn.org or digging in the dirt radio.com